Well, good morning. It is a great joy and privilege to serve you all this morning. From Redeemer Church of Dubai and from our senior pastor, Dave Furman, they extend their greetings to you all here at Grace Church. We have been praying for Pastor Steve and for Grace Church and all of its members uh, in our corporate gathering regularly in our church. So we are so encouraged. They're happy to send me here to serve you, and I pray that we, I would serve you well as I open God's word. So I really, really enjoyed. Yes, we did feel welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, it is always, it's a joy for me just to experience this time of worship here at Grace. When the, every time we, when you guys led us in worship through songs, when you guys led us in prayers that, re, that uses God's word, such a wonderful experience just worshiping the Lord in this area. Uh, speaking about worship, we're going to talk about worship this morning. And we are going to look at it through the lenses of Psalm 95. So I'd like to invite everyone to turn their Bibles with me to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. <clears throat> As you go there, I'm going to give you a short uh, background of this psalm. Psalm 95 has been used by churches throughout the ages as a call to worship. According to one theologian named Charles Spurgeon, he calls it, it is a psalm of invitation to worship. This psalm, with its historical uh, references to the Old Testament, specifically in Exodus chapter 17, uh, where the Israelites were in the wilderness wandering. It is used to help shape and inform God's people on how to worship Him. This psalm also reminds his readers to faithfully listen to God's word, God's voice, and not rebel against him like the first generation of Israelites who went out from Egypt. So uh, let me read to us Psalm 95, verses 1 towards 11. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let me jump into two points. I, we only have two points this morning. Number one, if you are writing this out, the first point is a call to worshipers. That is from verses 1 to the first part of verse 7. And number two, a caution to worshipers. A caution to worshipers from the second part of verse 7 through 11. Number one, a call 
to worshipers. In verse 1 to 2, we see that the Lord is constantly calling, constantly inviting God's covenant people to worship Him. Uh, look at verse 1. Come, let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Verse 2, let us come into His presence with thanksgiving and songs of praise. And in verse 3, we see the word for. Now, for is a very important conjunction here because it gives the purpose, the reason why the psalmist is constantly inviting God's people to sing and why he is commanding them to make joyful, thankful songs of praise. And here's the reason why. For, for the Lord is a great God. He's a great God. This is, in the, this is the main reason why the psalmist is constantly inviting God's people to worship him. It's because he's a great God and he wants to be worshipped for who he is. And in the same way, God is also inviting us believers in Jesus Christ right now. He is inviting us to worship God for who he is. True worship is not based on our fanciful imaginations, thoughts, ideas, experiences, or feelings about God. But it is based on the character of God himself revealed in Scripture. I remember when I was young, uh, uh, grade school age, I, I bought this plastic neon green cross necklace so that I wear everywhere I go. Uh, I felt every time I wear that necklace, I feel like I was so close to the Lord. Uh, I pray to this cross. I cry to this cross. I confess my sin to this. Basically, I was worshiping this thing. But every time I commit a sin or I'm planning to commit an act of rebellion, I slowly remove that necklace and put it in my pocket, hoping that he would not see me. I was only wearing that cross when I desperately needed comfort, security, and courage. Several things are wrong here. First of all, I created a God out from my imagination. Second, I fashion a God that I can manipulate and control. Third, I also worship this God in a way that pleases me. And sadly, a lot, a lot of believers today think that way about God and how to worship Him. Some might say, well, it doesn't matter how you worship God as long as you're sincere and it's from your heart. Besides, God knows my heart. Friends, but it does matter to God how we worship Him. And yes, that is true. We could be sincere, but we can also be sincerely wrong. And yes, God does see the heart. And that should not be drawn for us to be comforted, but sometimes when we think about that, we should be threatened because according to Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is wicked and deceitful and, and sick, and who can understand it? When God sees that, that's, that's terrifying. We must be careful. True worship finds its grounds, its purpose, its motivations in the character of God revealed on the Bible, His Word. We worship God for who He is, not for who we want Him to be. We worship God because who He is and not about who we are. Verse 3 to 7, the psalmist gives us a description of who this God is and why we should worship Him. 
my hope and my prayer and my desire this morning is that as we go through this passage, we would see the beauty and majesty and glory and might of this great God who is inviting us to worship Him. Let's jump right ahead. Under point number one, I have a few sub-points. Number one, He is the great King. This God is a great king. Verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. The psalmist here is not saying that there are different types of gods aside from Yahweh. This is the psalmist's poetic way of denying or mocking the gods that are existing from other nations surrounding Israel. Whether these gods are carved of the wood or stone or human rulers or kings, God is greater than them. His kingship and majesty is far greater above all these counterfeit, counterfeit gods that are really no gods at all. Uh, I remember a, a friend back in, in, in grade school, and I'm, I'm sharing this not because I'm proud of it. I believe I was not regenerated back then, so I believe God already did some transformation in my heart now. But uh, back in grades, uh, no, sorry, that's high school, we have a friend called Al. And, and Al, we, we make fun of Al. We make fun of the way he dresses, the way he talks. Uh, we, we, make, we, we really bullied him. And, and until one day, one of our friends came to us and says, hey, guys, we need to stop making fun of Al. And he, I saw this concern. And he said, I said, why, well, you starting to become concerned now? I said, no, because he is one of the sons of the chieftains of this so-so region. And, 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 and we were petrified. In short, Al is a prince. He's royalty. And we, our face turned pale, our jaw dropped. And, and he said, I'm not done. He, my friend said, his father is coming this afternoon. And we panicked. All of a sudden, we become nice to Al. All of a sudden, we started, you know, treating him nice, treating him with respect, honored him. We even bought him lunch. And because, why? What changed? Because of what, the way we understand who this guy is. Friends, this is, this is just a prince. He's not even the king. Just imagine if he was the king. He was the king. But also, think about this, friends. Just imagine standing in front of a holy, majestic king. I think... We do understand from this place what, what that looks like. We are ruled by sheikhs and kings. We do know that. When we worship the Lord, we must understand that He's no ordinary king. He is the king of kings and He's the Lord of lords. He should be feared and revered. We should be humbled that this holy king is inviting us to worship Him. Psalm 40, verse 60 says, but, my, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation continually say, Great is the Lord. Psalm 42, verse 1 to 2. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed with majesty. Friends, when we come to the Lord in prayer, do you view him as a king? Second, he's not only a great king, but he's also a great creator. 
He is a wonderful creator. Verse 4 to 6. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Verse 4 to 6. He is the great creator God. The psalmist further expounds how far greater Yahweh is compared to the man-made gods of the nations that surrounded Israel. These nations worship different types of local gods. They worship the god of the valley, the god of the mountains, the god of the sea, the fire god, the celestial gods, and, and different kinds of gods. Now, the psalmist is saying is Yahweh is greater because he is no ordinary local god. What type of God are we talking about? We're talking about He is the creator God. He created the mountains. He created the seas. He created the valleys. The depths of the earth are in His hands. He created the greater light and the lesser lights. When He spoke, galaxies of stars were born. He stretched out the heavens. He created all things, heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Whether rulers, dominions, authorities, all things were created by God. And for the purpose to display his glory to the watching world. He is the great creator God. He's no puny God that we can control and manipulate. With this understanding, look how the psalmist responded in verse 6. Oh, come, let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This man is awestricken by the glories of the Lord. Now this is remarkably humbling. The majestic king, the creator of the world, whose hands created and fashioned the world are the very same hands that gently, carefully, fearfully Form our inward parts and knit us, uh, knitted us together in our mother's womb. That, this is where it blows my mind away. This, this very same hands are the very hands who was nailed at the cross, whose his blood bled for our sins. He is not just our creator, he is our savior. He is the great creator God. This is what we need to remind ourselves every time we come to corporate gathering, every time and worship it, every time we come to our private time worshiping God. He is the creator. We are the created. Honestly, he tells us what to do. We don't tell God what to do. We should be humble. Have you created in your thoughts a God that you can easily control or manipulate? Or have you created a God that you have contained and confined on the walls of your flat that you can easily escape or out of your convenience can worship Him anytime you like? We must understand that God cannot be contained. This is the God that we cannot control, friends. The Bible says in Acts chapter 7, verses 48 to 50, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. 
as the prophets say in verse 49, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these? Isn't that humbling? Very humbling. He is the mighty creator of God. Not only he is the great majestic king, who created everything. He's also a caring and loving and personal God. That's my third point or sub-point. He is our great shepherd. Verse 7, For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. The psalmist is using a shepherding metaphor, shepherding language, when he was, as he was writing this. Uh, provided for, he, uh, he took, uh, he's, he, sorry, let me say that again. Psalmist is using a shepherding metaphor to picture how God took care, provided for, and protected his covenant people Israel. Though he is the majestic creator God, is all, he, though he's also, he's also a loving personal God who cared and looked after them. Uh, look at verse 6 to 7 here. It says, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. You see that personal pronoun? Our maker. Verse 7, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He's not a cold, distant, cosmic being that after he created that he left us and cared, do not care about us. There was a famous song about God in 1985. And um, it hit number one almost in all charts in every part of the world. And um, I want to read the part that talks about God. And um, I'm not going to sing it. You don't want me to sing. Now you know I'm not part of a choir or uh, you, you don't want to go there. So let me read the part that says about what I'm talking about. The song says, God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. Oh, now I have an idea how old you guys are. Some of you are smiling. You know the song. But friends, part of me is troubled by that. I feel that it feels wrong, not just because we're basing it on feelings, but theologically, biblically, it's troubling because God did not distance himself from us. He is not, uh, he is not just watching us from a distance. In fact, the message of the gospel is God with us. Where God incarnated, took the form of a man from the virgin birth, lived the perfect life that we could not die on the cross that we deserve. God is with us. He's not there watching and observing. If you mess up, he throws a lightning bolt. Have this big book. Okay, you mess. No, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's not far. No. Christ made a way to bridge that. He is a personal God who cares for you and for me. Imagine that. He, if, if he knows the numbers of galaxies of stars in the cosmos and knows each by name and knows the numbers of hair strands on your head, wouldn't he know your name? 
Wouldn't he know your fears and tears? Wouldn't he know your concerns and cares? Wouldn't he know your frustrations and anxieties? Wouldn't he know what you need, when you need it, how you needed it? Maybe you're here today and you're hurting. Going through a very rough time with your spouse. Probably rebellious children. Finances are not looking good. Maybe you discovered that you have this ailment, a disease, or maybe not you, a loved one. And you're just devastated. Or maybe right now you're having a hard time at work. Or maybe you feel that you're going to lose your job. Or maybe you lost your job and looking. And you've been looking, looking for weeks and months. It's all about a year. Talking about visa runs. Or a lot of things. And you're just devastated. And, and you feel that God probably does not care about you. Maybe you're facing issues that you have caused. Or maybe somebody had caused. And you feel that God has been silent in your prayers. Or maybe you think that God has totally forgotten about me. No, no, don't, no. He has not. Psalm 34, verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out from all their troubles. Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help, for his temple heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Listen, it doesn't mean that God is silent. He's absent. He is actively working something right now in your life you're not even seeing. He is the great shepherd that we shall not be in want. He will care and provide for our needs. But, but, please be reminded that He does this in His own time, in His own way, in His own will, sovereign will. We must trust Him that all things work together for good and for the, ultimately for His glory. I think you guys have gone through the book of Habakkuk. One of the best part of the Habakkuk that I've learned from is this. Are you willing to trust God even though he says no? For the righteous shall live by faith. God is the great majestic creator who cares about us. And we are to worship him for who he is. He is our king, creator, shepherd. Fourthly, he is the rock of our salvation. I want us to jump right back to verse 1. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Now, what does that mean? Now, this verse is a direct reference to what God did in the first generation Israel out in the wilderness. And we see that in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. This is what I want you to do. Put your index finger in Psalm 95 and flip a few books back, pages back, and let's read Psalm 17 Verse 1 to 7. Now, as you go there, as you turn there, let me give you a little background. This is where Israel has been delivered out from Egypt and are on their way to Mount Sinai to receive God's law. As they camp in the middle of the desert, they got really thirsty and there was no water. There's no well. There's no rain. There's nothing. 
they started to panic, started to get irritated, started to get angry with the Lord, and started questioning Moses, started grumbling, and then threatened to kill Moses. And, of course, Moses got afraid. He started crying out to the Lord. He says, what, 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 what am I going to do? I'm going to kill. What to do? What, what's going to happen? And this is how God responded. Verses 5 to 7. Let me read that to you. I want you to listen to the instructions coming from the Lord. And this is the guy who's crying out he's going to die. He doesn't do, God doesn't do nothing. Verse 5 to 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Now, now what kind of instruction is that? Let me, let me walk through uh, let me, let me walk through it with you. First of all, God instructed Moses to bring the elders to serve as witnesses. For what? I'll tell you later. And then the next second instruction is to bring the staff. Now, this staff represents God's judgment. Why? Because this is the very same staff that he dipped to the river Nile and became blood. This is the very same staff that God used for the plagues. So Israel know what this staff means. So when, when, when the elders come with Moses, goes in front of this rebellious people with the staff, this is a judgment council. And we are out to judge this rebellious people. They are creating mutiny against God. Okay? It was a sign that they are out to judge Israel. But instead of striking the people dead with the judgment staff, he struck the rock where God was standing. Instead of giving them what they deserve, death, God gave them life. There was water and they lived. What does this have to do with us, friends? You know, worship is a command. And like any other commands that the Lord gave us, no one can do it perfectly. In fact, we disobey it. Because the fallen nature of man is not to worship God. The fallen nature of man is to worship himself. In the sight of God, that is idolatry. That is idolatry. This is rebellion against God. And he does not share his glory to anyone. Because God is holy, is a holy judge, and we are guilty of this sin rebellion. We deserve to be judged. But instead of striking us with his wrath of judgment to death, he sends His Son, Jesus Christ, who perfectly worshipped God the Father. God the Father, instead of striking us dead with His judgment, judged the Son in our place. Instead of giving us what our sins deserve, which is death, He gave us life through the cross of His Son and through His blood there is life. Friends, Jesus is the rock of our salvation. Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 to 4, and he quotes this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all 
ate the same spiritual food, which is manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink in the rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was who? It was Jesus. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. Jesus is the majestic, glorious king who left his kingdom to die for his people. Jesus is the great creator God who was crucified by those whom he created in his image. He is, Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. Friends, the glorious, majestic creator God made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father. I urge you to repent from your sins and put your faith in, in Christ's finished work on the cross for your salvation, for the forgiveness of sin. Because of what Christ, because of Christ's redeeming power, we now have access to the Father and are now able to worship God with joy, thankfulness, reverence, obedience. We can now worship Him in prayer and thanksgiving and serving, and God will not look at it as a filthy rag. He will look at it with pleasure because of what Christ has done. We now worship God not just because of who He is, but because of what He has done. So these first seven verses outlines a description of who this great God is and why we are to worship Him. Now in the second part of this passage, the psalmist switches, if you may, from a call to worshipers to a caution or a warning to worshipers. I'm, I'm going to move faster than the first part, okay? Ver, uh, number two, a caution to worshipers. Verse seven, second half of verse 7 to 9. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts at Moriba, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. Here's the warning. Do not harden your hearts against our great God, who introduced himself in the first seven verses. What does the psalmist mean when he warns God's covenant people to harden their hearts? And how is this connected to worship? Again, we go to Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. Let's continue the story. What happened? After Moses struck the rock and water gushed out from it, here's what happened. Verse 7. He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? What is Mariba? What is Masa? Mariba means in Hebrew to quarrel. Why did he call this place quarrel? Okay, right now in this section, I'm going to call this place quarrel. Why? Because that was the place they were, where they quarreled with God. Verse 3, why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They were mocking God. Masa, what is Masa? They called also that place Masa. Masa means to test. They called it the testing place or the place of testing because that's the place where they tested God and where they failed to believe his word. Verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? That's a, that's a loaded question. So when the psalmist warned God's covenant people to not harden their hearts, it means do not test God do not quarrel with God. Do not rebel against His instructions or word. But here's what happened. They quarreled with God's purposes and doubted Him as their king. 
They doubted that God would provide for and sustain them as their creator. They tested God's ability to lead and guide them as their shepherd. That's what happened here. The psalmist is reminding them how wrongly their forefathers responded to this majestic God. They tested him and quarreled with God. How is this related to worship, friends? It was God's sovereign plan to lead the people of Israel to this specific place and time where in the desert where there's no wells, no oasis, no water, no provision, nothing. For what purpose? In order to test them. It was a test whether they are to humble themselves before God or not. It was a test if they were to obey God's word or rebel against Him. It was a test whether if they were to trust Him or doubt Him. It was a test whether they are to harden their hearts against Him or worship Him in the midst of this trial. For the Israelites, their hearts were exposed. Because of this issue, their hearts were exposed to what they truly worshipped. They had worship. Here's what they truly worship. They truly worship the prosperity, security of Egypt. And they have worshipped convenience and comfort more than they worship God. Let me run through you some quick verses just to give uh, support to that, to that statement. Exodus chapter 17, verse 3. Let's look at the hearts. You'll, you'll catch a person's heart when they keep on repeating things. Uh, when there's repetition, there's emphasis, okay? So Exodus chapter 17, verse 3. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? See the sarcasm here? Exodus chapter 14, verse 11 to 12. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what he said to you? And they're talking to Moses in Egypt. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. They would rather serve their idols. For, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For we have brought out of it into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Do you see their hearts? Numbers 11, 4 to 6. Now the rabble that was among them, the people, had a strong craving, or they're craving their former food in Egypt. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we have meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions. The... Do you see their gods here? Their gods in their belly. Verse 6, But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. God's provision, the bread from heaven. They say this is nothing compared to Egypt. God's provision is nothing compared to Egypt. It revealed what they truly value, what they truly worship, the prosperity of Egypt. Stephen shared this event in his speech in front of the elders and scribes of Israel in Acts 7 verse 39. Look at what he said. Our fathers refused to obey him, Moses but thrust him on the side 
And in their hearts, they turn to Egypt. They may be in the wilderness obeying God, but their hearts are in Egypt. That's their God. And that was exposed through a pressing circumstance. Water. How did God respond? Psalm 95 verse 10. Look at verse 10. For 40 years I loathed this generation. They are people who go astray in their hearts. You know what loathed me? Loathed me. I was disgusted by these people. God was disgusted with them after showing himself to be more glorious than any earthly king or pharaoh. After revealing his power and authority over nature by dividing the Red Sea. After providing for and protecting them as their shepherd in the wilderness, they still cling on and cried out to the real gods of their lives. Themselves. My needs, my wants, my convenience. As a result of the rebellion, God did not let this generation go who went out from Egypt and reached the promised land. Everybody died except Joshua and Caleb, who were faithful. God had brought them in that situation to test them, but it turns out that they are the ones who are testing God. They hardened their hearts, which resulted to their 40 years of wanderings and their deaths. Friends, here's my point. Where does this worship comes in? I do not know what you're going through in your life right now, but the way we respond to the trials and testings that the sovereign Lord had allowed in our lives will expose, will reveal what we truly value, who we truly worship in our hearts, what we really trust, who we really depend on. Let that sink for a moment. How are you... How are you responding to trials and suffering in your lives right now? Well, let, let me suggest two ways. One of two ways. There could be a lot, but time says two ways. One, we can respond to sufferings and trials with closed fists. Clinching. Do we respond by clinching our fists against God with hardened hearts? Do we test him? Do we quarrel against his will? Do we complain? Do we give in to compromises? Do we question his purposes? Do we rebel against his commands? Do we harden our hearts against him? Why? Or do we respond with suffering and some trials by opening our hands and bowing our hearts in worship, hearing his voice, submitting, surrendering to His will, trusting that He is our great Creator God who will sustain us, and that He is our great Shepherd who will care for us and provide for us, and that He is the majestic Sovereign King over all who works all things together for good, for the praise of His name. Are we responding with worship? Are we hearing God's voice, or have we hardened our hearts? Tim Keller a pastor in, in New York said in his talk on worship gave a comment to Psalm 57 and this is how he responded to Psalm 57. How do you face the toughest issues in your life? I quote, with peace and rest, 
The answer to that is mainly through worship. In Psalm 57, the psalmist talks about how bad things are in life. His enemies are everywhere. Things are out of control and everything is going wrong. He never asks for anything. The only thing that he sees is how great and majestic God is. But what amazes me, Keller said, about Psalm 57 is this man is calling out to God, not through petitionary prayers, which is it's okay, but through worship. There is something much higher and more beautiful in this world compared to all the evil of the world, and that is God. Everything we go through will just be a pinprick that comes out when you worship. Worship really gets you rest. Worship in the midst of suffering gives you rest. Now what's interesting in verse 11, and this is our last verse, he ends this passage, uh, interestingly, verse 11 says, Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. If we think about this passage, the time that the psalmist wrote this psalm, Joshua had already led the people of Israel in the promised land, or the promised rest. Then, then this means probably that the psalmist uh, is, is, is talking about another type of rest. He is trying to uh, think about a, a rest that is beyond Israel. Uh, if you have the time in your devotion times, you can look at Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, which is an extended commentary of Psalm 95. But the promised rest where Joshua led the nation of Israel is not a perfect place of rest. There was suffering, there was sickness, there was death, there was wars, injustices, corruption, sin. However, this earthly rest is but a mere shadow of the heavenly rest that was being promised to those who put their faith in Christ. The heavenly rest is better than the earthly rest. This is what the psalmist is talking about. You know what? This is how we focus our worship because our world, we're not from around here. This is not our permanent residence. Uh, I know this country does not give citizenship, but you know what? In this world, we're not permanent as well. Our, our home is there. The heavenly rest is perfect because all of our sufferings, all of our pains, all of our sorrows and loneliness, all of our sickness will be no more. Loneliness will cease to exist. There will be no more fear of death because of the absence of sin. And we will be finally reunited for eternity to those who have gone before us, especially our Creator, our King, our Shepherd, Jesus Christ, for eternity. May this truth encourage us to press on. Two quick applications. Number one, as we worship God, to have a fruitful time of worship, know God better. That's number one, know God better. D.A. Carson, his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, says, we need to know God better. We think rather little of what He is like, what He expects of us, what He seeks in us. We are not captured by His holiness and His love, His thoughts, His words capture too little of our imagination, too little of our discourse, too few of our priorities. To, friends, as we worship, remind yourselves of the gospel that saved you. Think through. We should passionately desire a deeper knowledge of God. 2 Peter 3, 18, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And second, 
listen to God's voice. We listen to God's word as opposed to harden our hearts. What is God asking you to start doing? What is God telling you to stop doing? What are the things that are not honorable? Third, and this is where I close, respond in praise in whatever circumstances you are because you are created to worship. It's either you worship the wrong God or you worship the right God. In your situation, you worship the true living God. Let's pray. Father, with reverence, we acknowledge the privilege of knowing you personally, the majestic king and the creator of the world. Thank you for the privilege of worship and having our hearts stirred by your beauty and might. May we all examine our hearts that we might not leave this place with quarreling and testing on our tongues and hearts. As we go through the trials and testings that you have sovereignly ordained in our lives, may we not harden our hearts and rebel against you, but that we would bow our hearts and worship you as we look forward to that day on that promised eternal rest. Amen.